Welcome to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In each episode of this podcast, I look at one of the works of Philip K. Dick and give my commentary on it. In this episode, well, it's kind of a, an important episode because we're putting to an end to my coverage of Dick's publications of 1950. And if you're keeping track, there's actually been, this will be the 91st episode. I know my novel episodes are multi-parts, but this will be the 91st publication Dick had in the 1950s, starting with his first publications in, in 1952. And overall, he published, I guess, around 150 things. So over half of his actual publications took place in the 1950s. He continued to write for, for two and a half more decades at various clips. Um, now, of course, a lot of what he's going to write in the 1960s are novels. He publishes like 15 novels. So in bulk, in terms of bulk, he still publishes a lot in, in the 1960s. And it's just as prolific as the 1950s, if not more so. Um, but he sure, certainly wrote a lot of stories in, in the 1950s. Um, and this will be the last one we'll look at in for the 19, 1950s before getting into the big break breakout year of the uh, years of the 1960s, where some of his greatest man, masterpieces were, were published. So the story today is, is actually a pretty good one. So it's a good one to end on. It's called War Game. And it's about toys. It's about consumerism. It's about war, of course, as, as implied in the title. It's, it's really fascinating, I think. And it's, it's an idea that, that Dick is going to play with a little bit in The Zap Gun, which is another story. That's a novel, actually, that looks at the thin line between war and play. And in there, the, the theme is war developers make weapons that are never actually developed. They're just kind of developed as a threat as part of this Cold War one-upsmanship. But when a war, when a weapon is made, it's almost immediately plowshared, which is basically turned into a consumer good. And of course, there is a lot of feedback between consumer technology and consumer and, and military technology, right? A lot of Technologies used in everyday life had their innovation in in the military. So Dick's in this story, as he is in the Zap Gun, is, is exploring the line between play and war. And in this case, it's, it's really done in a fascinating way. He, Dick wrote a story much earlier in his career called The Little Movement, which is about people bringing in soldiers and toys into their house, where then they'd play out like wars. They had their own conspiracy, and part, a big part of the conspiracy of these aliens are creatures or robots or whatever they were was getting into the homes of adults through the children right and then there was other toys there who kind of defended the family from these invaders and it's kind of a silly playful fantasy story but that's also playing with this this idea of the consumer goods in our homes being having a conspiracy and threaten us in a way but it's it's not just that the the toy is going to wake up and strangle me one day here it's, it's much more interesting it's much more about the the meaning, the, the ideology that's, with, that's contained within the toy itself. What does the toy teach young people and how does it train them? And then how is that then in a weapon of war? 
So it's a, it's a really fascinating idea. And so with that, let's just jump into the story and see what's going on in this in War Game. So War Game was originally published in Galaxy magazine in December of 1959. And you can find it in volume four of Dick's Collected Stories, the one titled Minority Report, The Minority Report, and other classic stories by Philip Dick. It's about 15 pages long. So it's another fairly short one, but it's it has a little bit of meat to it. So basically what our, our setting here is like an import customs office. And our characters are just bureaucrats, agents whose job it is is to watch for, you know, watch what's being imported in and to see what's a threat. So our character here is Leon Wiesman, and he works for the Terran Import Bureau of Standards. And so he has to inspect everything coming in from Ganymede, all the commodities coming in from Ganymede, to determine if they're safe. Right? So it's a pretty banal bureaucratic job, the kind of job that Dick likes writing about, actually. Now, there's been growing tension between Terra and the moons of um, the, the, the off-world colonies. Sorry, I forgot there for a moment if Ganymede was a moon of Jupiter or, or Saturn. It's a, it's a moon of Jupiter. So there's growing tension between Terra and these off-world colonies on these moons. And so this has led to increased intention being placed upon imports and ensuring that these imports are safe. So Wiesman goes to see one of his employees, Pinaro, about a certain toy from Ganymede. So they get these toys. And the question is, like, do we let these toys in? Are they a threat? Are they dangerous in some way? Is, you know, and you, you think at first it's just about, you know, is there some kind of poison on it? Is there some kind of paint they use? Is there some kind of mind altering substance? But no, they're actually interested in whether the toy itself, its ideology, its essence, what it actually, how it actually functions is a threat. So this, the toy is, is toy soldiers that simulate the storming of a citadel. Pinero's been studying this toy for a long time, and he thinks it's very, very clever. The soldiers can utilize other toys in the child's playroom into their strategy of taking the citadel. The assault fails most times, but the difficulty setting can be changed. So basically, the toys, it's more like a simulated battle than an actual toy, but the you actually see, this is a classic toy soldier game that kids used to play. At least I don't know if kids still sort of play this with their action figures or whatever, but it's, it's the defense and a, an attack idea, right? So the toy soldiers are set up to attack the Citadel, and but the, the there's an AI there, so they can sort of use other things in the child's house to use creative ways to attack the Citadel. So it kind of, they become kind of fun simulations. Two days later, Wiesman is challenged by his boss, Fowler, for testing too extensively. He basically says, we're spending too much time on these toys, and they're just toys, right? Money's being lost the longer these toys stay in the warehouse. It's just a waste of resources to over-analyze. I mean, they're just toys after all. Wiesman then goes in to explain why this uh, storming Citadel toy soldier game is such a problem and needs to be watched and needs to be regulated, perhaps. So Pinero goes and shows Fowler that one of the soldiers has disappeared. Apparently, it's been consumed by the game. Now, the, there's a con conservation of mass here. So those, the, the soldier's gone. The, the pee, toy piece is gone, but... It's, you know, where it's gone, no one knows, right? It, it seems it's within the game itself because the weight of the game remains the same. Fowler thinks that this is a slowly, this, basically, 
this is the explanation for this is that maybe it's kind of a planned obsolescence, right? So the toy eats up its own pieces. The child will be blamed for losing pieces, but eventually, over a four-week period of time, over a week, over several weeks, the soldier will be gone, and the parent will have to replace the toy, right? So that's one theory of what's going on here. But over a week's time, four soldiers have been absorbed by the citadel in the testing that that Panaro is doing. So they go and look at another toy. And this, the another toy to be studied was a cowboy costume. And this is a costume, when you put it on, it creates a believable virtual reality with incredible detail. Fowler, though, immediately says that this is a dangerous toy because it will corrupt a child's view of reality. Now, this is kind of interesting because I, I've heard rumors out of China that you know, they, they want to ban things like fantasy fiction or, or science fiction or things that might present too much to a too compelling alternative vision of reality as it, you know, and the reason you ban this then is because it's a it's seen as, you know, too much imagination becomes a danger then to social stability because people start to imagine what could be outside of the world they live in. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how widespread this is. I, I don't think the whole genre has been banned. Of course, there are science fiction and fantasy writers in China. But so this is from 2011. China bans time travel films and shows citing disrespect for history. So the article says um, China's media authorities have stopped this clock on time travel in film and television, saying the sci-fi notion disrespects history. This would be odd for a country whose big and small screens have long been filled with historically porous period epics about scandalized courts of bygone areas. But not so when one considers that 2011 marks the 90th anniversary of the Chinese uh, ruling political party. The rationale for the time travel ban is that what, whatever isn't possible in the real world belong, belongs to superstition. So that, that's the explanation. I don't know. There's a bit of that here with this cowboy virtual reality costume. So Wiesman actually tested the costume, confirms that the simulation is seductive. It's not merely an alternative world. It's seductive and, you know, it'll kind of bring one in. It's, it's, it's like, kind of like how in the 80s there was that D&D fear. People, parents were afraid that D&D would lead children to escapism and that would be horrible for whatever reason. Uh, the toy is too seductive. Now, another toy they get is a board game that looks very much like Monopoly and is called Syndrome. Now, this is very interesting. So while they test that game, the Citadel game is continuing to operate. So Panero believes that the Citadel game is working its way up to becoming an atomic bomb, this process that will be completed when the last piece is absorbed. So he thinks that maybe it's actually just making itself into a weapon. And it tricks the customs agent by, th by showing that it's just a game, but in fact, it's, it's slowly making the, the bomb. Father, meanwhile, is unimpressed with the board game. He sees it as just a copy of Monopoly. So outside of copyright infringement, there's not much they're going to do about this game. Now, a bomb expert comes to study the Citadel Storming game because they're working on this new theory that the Citadel Storming game is a secret bomb. And he works to prevent the bomb from going off. And when the game finishes its cycle and absorbs the last toy soldier, the game declared them the winner giving encouraging life lessons about how important it is to preserve against, persevere against difficulty. But in fact, the Citadel game is proven to be harmless. It's merely a therapeutic toy that the, the, the player will fail many times and finally be victorious. They'll have this cathartic release. And then the game simply resets itself. The 12 soldiers reemerge and the assault begins anew. 
Weissman is still suspicious because it's a little bit too complicated to just be a child's toy. So he bans it. He does, however, approve the board game for release on Earth, he doesn't, which isn't even investigated. So that's, we're done with the uh, customs agent at this point. And then the next scene that, that kind of closes the story and gives us the punchline to the tale is one of these boys who, a kid, a chi- the child gets this board game. So the parent is named Joe, and he brings a copy of this new game Syndrome to his children. He stole it from his store's warehouse, actually, so I guess he didn't really buy it. The children reveal that the that the adults, including the testers at the Bureau of Import Standards, played the game called wrong. So they actually kind of read the rules. They don't just look at it and say, this is just Monopoly. They actually read the rules and play it properly. And they learn that the goal of the game is not to end up with the most stock. Joe didn't understand why anyone would want to play such a game. The children, though, seem to like it. And the game eventually teaches them to surrender their holdings and that winning requires them to give up their possessions. And so what's happening here, the long game that Ganymede is playing is to convince the younger generation of Earthlings to give up their overseas possessions and let them have their independence and to teach that losing is a virtue and surrender is a virtue. And and that's the story. Now, I kind of I really like this story because it it talks about the ideology within toys and within games that that children play. But let's talk about Monopoly a minute. So Monopoly is a game based on competitiveness, which isn't a very good way to, I think, run an economy in a society. I think we should. I mean, I'm simply a socialist, so I do believe in the importance of solidarity as a foundation for our economic system. That said, I do like to play the game of Monopoly, um, and I don't think there's a whole lot of necessarily ideology into it. If anything, I think someone taking a close look at the economics of Monopoly will realize that it's actually quite flawed, right? The luck that's involved. And the biggest flaw in Monopoly is, of course, what comes after you win. Right, because what happens after you win is you one player is the winner owning all the property, right, or all the other properties bankrupt or foreclosed on, and the other players have no money and no resources, and they can't. The economy breaks down at that point, right? And in fact, it's a self-destructive system is what we're presented with in Monopoly. The winner is actually going to be the loser pretty much in the next turn because he's going to have no no resources to make money except the resources he gets by his labor walking around the board getting $200 once in a while but it's it's not really a sustainable system and I don't know if that was in the intent of the game when it was designed but it certainly seems to be the the, the end, end story there it's it certainly uh you know, if anything, it shows the dangers of monopoly and the flaws of an economy based on too much concentration of wealth. But that said, I think Dick's looking at it much more straightforward and that monopoly is traditionally a game of competition and possessiveness and acquisition. And this game syndrome is actually teaching some bad habits, which would be surrender and weakness and kind of to embrace failure. The Citadel toy, though, in a way teaches in persistence it teaches the opposite lesson that syndrome does this uh the citadel attacking game teaches to keep working at it to keep struggling and eventually you'll win it's it's a the good lesson in a way 
But Syndrome teaches the bad lesson of just abandoning all hope and giving up before putting up much of a fight. Another thing I like about this story war game is that it shows petty bureaucrats at work. And it has a lot of fun with doing it. You know, first of all, this, this is the kind of maybe job that a lot of people would like to have, right? That you can you can test out toys, you test out the stuff being imported. It could be quite interesting, actually, especially in the context where you're 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 on guard. You you think they're trying to smuggle in dangerous things, and then your job is to find out what's dangerous or not. It, it's kind of investigative. So as far as bureaucratic jobs go, it's this. I can think of worse ones. They assume that everything that Ganymede wants to import is insidious in some way. In a way, we, we can't even prove that Syndrome is in an insidious game in itself. It, it may be not been a conspiracy. It might just be actually a game that's popular on Ganymede and they wanted to try to sell it on Earth. But we kind of built up the suspicion that something they're trying to bring in must be dangerous. Now, unfortunately, though, they can't really enjoy these games because they're on this vigilant lookout for the underhanded danger posed by each of these toys. The assumption that each new toy has an ideological or corrupting property is not foreign to us. Many parents indeed worry about the lessons taught by a toy or a television show that their children might watch. Perhaps there are even people out there playtesting games to identify these ideological assumptions. The best example of this, I think, is the maybe the paranoia about the impact of Barbie dolls on beauty standards among young women, right? That there's there's some people who think that there's almost a conspiracy involved, that the Barbie doll then is all meant to brainwash young children into a certain body image. And, you know, then they're going to grow up to be consumers of cosmetics and and products that try to lose weight and all that. And, you know, for, for me, I think that's a bit far-fetched to think that there is this this conspiracy going on you know we should all relax now if we remember the brown versus board of education decision they the lawyers for brown argued psychological evidence and the way they did this is they they showed studies of black children playing with toys and shot and showed how they preferred to play with toys that were that displayed or dolls that displayed white children and they would often justify this by saying that the white children are more beautiful or whatever I don't remember all the details of the study, but it was something like that. And then this was used as evidence to show that segregation actually has profound psychological effects on young black children and therefore should be overturned for the well-being. That separate but equal, you know, is unjustifiable if, it, if this separation is causing psychological harm to children. That, that was part of the argument. Now, what we see there is that it wasn't that the dolls taught racism. It's that racism taught children certain ways of interacting and respecting and, and treat, in, in thinking about their dolls, right? It's the, the ideology comes first in a way. Yeah, you know, I don't know, though. I, I do think some toys might have this effect. So I, I'm a bit on the fence. I, I don't know which is right. And I'd have to kind of surrender my authority here to psychologists who maybe know more about this. There was, of course, the D&D &D panic of the 1980s and there you especially religious parents were worried that dungeons and dragons and role-playing games were not only teaching escapism but were teaching all sorts of what well, sorcery and magic and anti-christian messages yet very few people who played dnd you know thought of it that way or you know turned from the church because of of their playing if anything if they turned away from their church it was probably for other reasons um that had nothing to do with the fact that they played dnd I am someone who got the talk from the pastor about playing D&D &D at one point in my life. 
It's kind of embarrassing, actually. I don't know how word got to him that I played it. Maybe I mentioned it to someone in the group, but I got to sit down with the uh, with the pastor. Now, the, the great device in this story is that the game Syndrome, which is the main story, the real war game, at least we want to think it's a real war game. It's kind of implied that, but I guess there's no concrete evidence that Syndrome is nothing but a game. It just has different rules from Monopoly. This is marginalized and not considered important. Most of our attention is focused on this very interesting Citadel storming game, which actually turns out to be very banal and teaches the opposite lesson from war game. The reason it's focused on, though, it's more exciting. It's seemingly more dangerous. It's more on the surface a war game. Perhaps its role was really to distract the regulars from the real dangerous toy, Syndrome. All the adults immediately, though, play the game wrong because none of them read the instructions. They assume Syndrome is just a game that plays as a reflection of capitalism. Like all other business games in real life, the goal is assumed to be the acquisition of all money. It is the most innocent children who actually read how the game is played, who don't come at the game with their preconceptions about how capitalism works, and that they actually study the proper way to play, and they learn that the goal is to lose money more quickly than the others. It's Monopoly in reverse. Now, by the way, there was a game I remember playing as a young person that is Monopoly in reverse. I think it was actually Mad. So it was, it was based on Mad Magazine, and the goal is to get rid of your money. I don't know if it's ever been reprinted as far as I know, but the, I do remember this game. So someone can look this up. There was a game called Mad, and it was basically Monopoly in reverse. Now, so what we learn here is that the Ganymedes are playing the long game, trying to use toys to re-educate children into a disposition towards surrender, or maybe just to surrender the offer colonies to, to the people of, of Ganymede. Now, but in a sense, all three toys do have a bit of a threat to them. Syndrome teaches that surrender leads to victory, or that loss, that surrender leads to victory. The Citadel Storming game teaches that even if you lose all your soldiers in a fruitless assault on enemy positions, you're still a winner in the end. Indeed, you win the game when you lose all of your soldiers. So what does that mean for war strategy and war tactics? It's like World War I tactics, right? That the more soldiers that you lose in fruitless assaults on the trenches, the more likely you're going to win in the end. I don't quite know how that works. The cowboy costume is dangerous then because it creates a world more convincing and attractive than the real one, and people are going to want to withdraw to that. This would have the effect of making the younger generations less willing to fight for this world. In a way, it leads the children to surrender their claim to objective reality. Therefore, all three toys have the goal of teaching the next generation of Terran children that surrender and defeat are goods, in a way. Or withdrawal is good. Had the regulators realized the real reason the Citadel game was a threat, not thinking that maybe it's really a bomb or it's just too complicated and we can't figure it out, so best play it safe, if they actually had understood why the Citadel game was a threat, they may have not let the game through so easily. They may have taken a closer look um, at that. So uh, I guess that does it for uh, War Game. That's, that's my analysis of it. I, I do think all three toys can be conceived of as having threats, and maybe any toy can be conceived as being threatening in a way, depending on how you look at it and what ideological assumptions you come at it. At the end of the day, we probably shouldn't take games too seriously, though. I think children are very adaptive and creative, and they're not so easily brainwashed as we like to think. It's, it's weird. Maybe it's adults who are so easily brainwashed that we fear that children can be easily brainwashed as well. I'm not as convinced.
All right, so that that does it for um, War Game, a really great story, and it does it for my coverage of Dick's 1950s writings and publications. So where do we go from here? Well, well, to the 1960s, of course. Um, we're going to start with two novels. So Dick published not that much uh, between 1959 and 1960, 1961, anyways. He, he publishes two novels, though. But neither of these are novels that he wrote at that time. Um, they're both throwback novels. They were both in a box somewhere, that, he, and he finally got them published. I don't know, because the name recognition was coming up. None of them really feel like his 1960s novels. Uh, neither of them feel like his 1960 novels. Now, one of them, the first we're going to look at is Dr. Futurity, which was originally ri written back in 1953. And I actually think this one is very good. I, I, I wish it got a little bit more love. It's, I wouldn't say it's one of my favorite of his stories, but I think it's got a lot of interesting things to, to say, especially about generations. And that's a theme I want to start to explore more and more in the 1960s because the, Dick starts to think more about it, but that this is kind of the, the generation wars. Especially you see it in Crack in, Crack in Space, but it showed a, a little bit here in Dr. Futurity. I'll probably spend four episodes or so on Dr. Futurity, on cover, my coverage of that novel. And that was published in 1960, but originally written in 1953. Then we have Vulcan's Hammer, which was also, I think, written back in 1953. It might have been his first science fiction novel that actually wrote, that he actually wrote, um, but he never published it. And that's about the surveillance state. And it also, I think, has interesting things to teach us, although it's often, like, it's often labeled as like one of his worst novels. Published in 1960 as well. So I'll look at that second. I, I mean, I don't hate either of these novels, but certainly Vulcan's Hammer has a lot of flaws in it, but it also has some things to, to say about um, criminal justice, about movements. I mean, I guess the saving grace of Vulcan's Hammer, besides that it deals with the surveillance state in interesting ways, is that it deals with movements and it deals with political movements of resistance, which is something Dick's not really known for. And there's not that many stories that focus on that. It, you have it in our friends from Full X8. You have it here in Vulcan's Hammer. But there's not many other examples we have of actual mass movie conspiracies against an oppressive government. You know, as we've seen in stories like The Man Who Japed and The World Jones Made, resistance tends to come from within the within the state apparatus or kind of the internal kind of you work from within to undermine the system in a way. Anyway, so that, that's what's coming up next, those two novels. So although I'm talking about them now, in a way, they're actually of the 1950s as well. And that will set us up for uh, Dick's 1962 novel, The Man in the High Castle, the one he won the Hugo for. So we'll be, after we look at Vulcan's Hammer and Dr. Futurity, we'll be off to the races and jump into his, um, his golden age, uh, where all these, he writes great novel after great novel. Um, so anyways, that does it. Uh, thanks for listening to my coverage of, of Philip Dick's 1950s publications. I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to be right here, continuing to slog my way through the works of Philip Dick. So Thanks for supporting this podcast. Thanks for listening. And I'll see you next time with, with my first episode on Dr. Futurity. My tired thoughts That leaving dies, that leaving dies.
Immediately 